Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole, and excited to be here with you for another day. Before we jump in, I announced it last week, but wanted to send a reminder. Maybe you weren't listening last week, but there is now a YouTube channel. There actually has been for some time, but it's actually now getting some more consistent content. I'm making an effort to post a new video to once per week. So if you enjoy watching content on YouTube as opposed to listening to it on a podcast or in addition to listening it to on a, on a podcast, check out our YouTube channel. You can find that by going to YouTube and searching for Root Financial Partners, which is the name of my financial planning company. And there is content on there dedicated to retirement planning. So a lot of it is very similar to what we talk about on these episodes. Some of it's in more concise forms. Some of it's totally different. So go there for some other resources and make sure that you subscribe so that you can get all the best retirement planning, at least in my opinion, <laughs> all the best retirement planning information that you can possibly get. So with that being said, today's episode, I get quite a lot of bit of feedback from you as we're listening. And by the way, thank you very much to everyone who's written in. I love getting to share emails or just share correspondence. It's a lot of fun to be able to connect with you. And I'll get a lot of questions. And some of these questions we can spend an entire episode addressing because it's a very thorough question or something that takes quite a bit of time to go through. Other times I get questions that are very good questions but they can be answered much quicker. And so it doesn't make sense to devote an entire episode to them. But what we're going to do today is there's a handful of questions that have come in over the last several months, and we're going to be addressing them all on one episode as opposed to doing a separate episode for each of them. So again, thank you for everyone who has written in a question. If you have a question, it's very helpful for everyone to see how I dissect that or just what process or what framework to apply to questions as you approach them. So if you have a question, go to readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And there's a tab there where you can submit your own question that I'll answer in a future episode. But for today, let's jump into the first question. This first question came a little while back from Stephen. Stephen says, Good segment today on dividend investing. One dimension you did not touch on is the virtues of reinvesting versus realizing dividends. The answer may be in the timing. In the heyday of the accumulation phase, I assume reinvest. But at what point do I turn the switch and realize the cash for retirement? I have to pay taxes on it in any case and realize that the reinvested amount becomes part of the cost basis. So why not take the cash for living expenses? Thank you, Stephen. So the question at the end of the day is, do I reinvest my dividends or do I pay my dividends to cash? Now, my perspective on this is as long as you're keeping the overall allocation and balance and as long as you're managing the taxation of that the best way possible, then it doesn't really matter. But let's explore that. Let's look at an example of keeping the overall allocation and balance. Let's just assume for the sake of simplicity, that you have two funds. And one of these funds pays a high dividend. And one of these funds, it's more of a growth fund. Maybe it's a tech fund where there's not a lot of dividends, but it's focused on capital appreciation. Well, let's assume that those dividends from the dividend fund go to cash and that maybe you're retired and you are living off of those cash dividends and the growth fund just keeps on riding. What's going to happen over time is that growth fund is going to represent a bigger and bigger percentage of your overall portfolio. Maybe you wanted it to be 50-50, just for a simple example's sake at the beginning, but the dividend fund 
part of its growth, a big portion of its growth is that dividend. And if it's paying that to cash and you're then living on that cash, you're effectively going to get a much lower ongoing growth rate from that dividend fund than you are from the more growth oriented fund. So if you don't manage that, if you're, if you're just content saying, well, great, I have money coming in from my dividend fund and I'm living on it, your portfolio allocation is going to start to get really skewed and it might become very different than what it was originally intended to be. And the risk of that may end up being much greater than you intended to be. So that's an example where if you are living on the dividends, you have the potential for your portfolio to get out of balance. So you do need to be mindful of that. Now, the other thing that you have to be mindful of is potential tax hits. So what's an example of that? Well, let's assume that all of your funds have dividends being reinvested. And by the way, it's not just dividends that get reinvested when you own mutual funds. It's also capital gains. So if you have a capital gain in your portfolio, meaning the funds inside of the mutual fund or these stocks inside of the mutual fund, well, those go up in value. And when they go up in value, occasionally the stock manager or the mutual fund manager is going to sell them. When they sell them, they pass along those capital gains to the shareholders. And those are in the same way dividends get reinvested or distributed. Capital gains also get distributed and can be reinvested. So anyways, let's look at this from a tax standpoint. Let's say that on January 1st, you have a fund and there's a big dividend distribution or capital gain distribution. And let's assume that both of those, they just get reinvested. Now, let's say you want to pull funds out on July 1st and the market in those six months between January and July 1st is up quite a bit. Well, now you have a short term capital gain that you have to deal with if you're going to sell that fund. Now, you could go and sell specific lots. A lot of trading tools will allow you to specify what lot you want to sell and you can sell one that doesn't have a short term capital gain. But it's just simpler not to have to deal with that. So you want to make sure that if you are reinvesting dividends and capital gains, Whenever you do go to sell an investment to free up cash, you need to make sure that you're avoiding any sale that involves a short-term capital gain, if at all possible. So if you're doing this, if you're able to keep your portfolio in balance, whether you reinvest dividends and simply rebalance along the way, or whether you have dividends paid to cash and you just choose which fund to reinvest them to, then it doesn't really matter from a returns perspective which is better. At the end of the day, you're going to be doing the same thing. You're going to be redeploying the cash into the right investment and keeping the overall portfolio on balance. On top of that, if you're able to minimize the tax hit, then it also doesn't matter so much. Now, by the way, if all of your funds are in an IRA or Roth IRA or some other qualified account, then the tax hit really doesn't matter at all because there are no taxes. You can realize short-term gains, long-term gains. It's all either tax-deferred or tax-free. So this only really applies when you're investing in a non-retirement type account. So I guess the feedback would be if you want something that's easy, and if you have a lot of time before retirement, you may just want to reinvest your dividends and make sure you're rebalancing periodically. You're going to ensure that that dividend or those capital gain distributions don't just sit in cash too long, which would create a performance drag on your portfolio. But you do just want to make sure that's being rebalanced. If you are retired and you are now living on a piece of your portfolio, it does not hurt to pay those dividends to cash so that the cash is available for you. But just make sure that if that cash builds up to be too much, you are reinvesting it, not necessarily in the fund that created the dividend or the capital gain, but in whatever fund needs to be invested into to maintain the overall balance of the portfolio. So thank you for that question, Stephen. That's a a good question. Next one is from Neil. Neil says, how do you feel about replacing much of the bond portion of your portfolio with an income annuity? He then says, is there any portion 
of your total portfolio that you might consider putting into an annuity for someone considering retiring in the next year? Well, maybe, but this is kind of an apples to oranges comparison. I wouldn't say that bonds and income annuities represent the same purpose or same goal in a a portfolio. For example, the way I like to use bonds in a portfolio is to serve as a ballast and to serve as a place to draw income from in years where the market is down. Let's explain. So what does a ballast do? Well, a ballast counteracts the the rest of the portfolio. So if you have stocks in your portfolio, there's going to be many years when the stocks are up, but there's also going to be years where those stocks are down. Not always, but quite often when stocks go down, bonds go up in value. So if you have a portfolio of stocks that's going down and you also have some bonds in your portfolio, it serves as a ballast. It helps to counteract some of the volatility in the portfolio by balancing out the total portfolio. On the income side, the other purpose of bonds, because the purpose of bonds is not really to grow. We've had a 40-year run here where bonds have actually grown quite nicely, but that's because interest rates were in the teens 40 years ago, and they are now almost zero. So as interest rates fall, bond prices rise. But unless you think that that trend will continue and that we see significant negative interest rates here in the U.S., you're probably not going to get much growth in the bond portion of your portfolio. So they serve as a ballast and they also serve as income, meaning if you're in retirement and stocks are going up, well, then you're going to have no problem creating income. You just sell some of the stocks that have gone up in value and you live on them. But if stocks are down 30 40%, The last thing you want to do in those years is sell those stocks to create income. It's just compounding the negative impact of a down year in the stock market. So what do you do? Well, ideally, in those years, you have bonds that have stayed stable or even gone up in value. You can sell those and live on them. So those are the two primary purposes that I like bonds for as a ballast and as income in down years. Now, an income annuity, it doesn't really serve either of those purposes. An income annuity is kind of like buying a pension. So with an income annuity, you might hear something called a single premium immediate annuity where you go to an annuity company, which is just an insurance company. You say, here's this lump sum of money, and they're going to guarantee you a fixed monthly income for the rest of your life, or maybe for the rest of your life and your spouse's life or something like that. So it can serve a purpose, certainly, but it's not really the same purpose of being a ballast or providing for income in a down year. Let's look at this again. So ballast, we talked about that being one of the purposes for bonds. We want bonds to offset some of the stock losses we're going to have some years in the stock market. So instead of a portfolio that's all stock being down 40% in a really bad year, if it's part stock and part bonds, maybe you're only down 25%, for example. Well, if you'd put all of those bonds in an income annuity instead of the stocks, well, then you have a monthly income from the income annuity, but now the rest of your portfolio is all stocks. And now it is down 40% instead of the 25% that we just looked at in this example. So it missed that purpose. It didn't help to smooth out the ups and downs of your portfolio when you look at the portfolio as a whole. Again, it didn't, it wasn't bad that you had income coming in, but it was just a completely separate thing than serving as a ballast. Now, what about the other purpose that I talked about, which is serving as income when stock markets are down? Well, let's say that you have a million dollar portfolio. And let's assume that you need to withdraw $50,000 per year from it to supplement your social security, your pension, or whatever else you're living on. Well, let's say that you look at your financial plan in your portfolio and you might want to have five years of income set aside in bonds so that the stock portion of your portfolio falls. You know that you don't have to touch it for at least five years. Well, if you want five years of income and that's 50,000 per year, 
you're going to want to have $250,000 in bonds in your portfolio, which means the other $750,000 could be invested in stocks. And I'm just using a very simple example here. Well, if stocks are up in your portfolio, great. You're going to take the $50,000 of income from there. If stocks are down, though, you're going to take the $50,000 from bonds, giving time for the stock portion of your portfolio to recover. Now, let's assume that instead of putting the $250,000 in bonds, what if you use that to purchase an income annuity? Well, if that income annuity could generate $50,000 per year, then that would be a pretty compelling reason to strongly consider purchasing that income annuity. But you're not going to find an income annuity today that pays you $50,000 per year with just a $250,000 investment into it. I ran some simple calculations on an online calculator and said, if you put $250,000 into an income annuity and you're a 65-year-old male and your spouse is also 65 years old, well, that $250,000 would lead to an income of about $12,000 to $13,000 per year. So it's something, but it's certainly not going to cover the entire $50,000 per year that you need from it. So now all of a sudden, this portion of your portfolio that you have set aside for down years in the stock market well, it's going to raise your income floor by twelve to thirteen thousand per year, but there's still another thirty-seven to thirty-eight thousand dollars that you need each year from your portfolio. And if stock market just goes up each year, then that's fine. You still have the seven hundred fifty thousand in stocks to generate that. But if the stock market is down, well, now you need to pull money from a down portion of your stock portfolio, which is what you want to avoid. So it doesn't really serve that purpose either. What would you use an income annuity for? Well, if you have a very low risk tolerance or you just can't stand the ups and downs of the stock market, that could be a potential use case for an income annuity. You don't want to have to face the ups and downs. You want a guaranteed income source. That's what it could be used for. Or maybe you look at your retirement and say, okay, between social security and an annuity and maybe some other guaranteed income source, I want to have my basics covered. I want to ensure that I'm never going to be without food or electricity or utilities or any other essentials for living. Sometimes people will use an income annuity for that to get a guaranteed minimum floor for how much their income is going to be each month or each year. So they know the basics are covered and they use the rest of their portfolio for the fun stuff above and beyond that. Other than that, though, I would not necessarily look at an income annuity necessarily as a bond replacement, just because in my opinion, they're serving two separate purposes. And at the end of the day, a lot of people are asking this, or the people that are asking this are primarily asking it because bond interest rates are so low, which means bond yields just really aren't going to provide much in interest. Well, keep in mind, the annuity rates are really also tied to interest rates. So the same thing that's driving lower bond yields is the same thing that's going to lead to lower annuity rates as well. So it's not as if one thing here is impacted by low interest rates and the other isn't. So good question, though. That is actually something people are paying attention to, and that is my perspective on it. So thank you, Neil, for that question. Next question here is from Stuart. Stuart says, really enjoy your podcast about RMDs, required minimum distributions. I have a question. Let's say I turn 72 in November. Do I have to wait until after my birthday to take the RMD for that year? Or for my withdrawal to count as my RMD for that year, could I take it, say, in May and have that count as my RMD? I'd prefer not to take two RMDs, the one for the previous year and the one for that year, by waiting until the following year. Stuart, you can take your RMD any time in the year that you turn 72. Same goes for every subsequent year. It's really a required distribution that you have to take any time in that calendar year. It does not matter if you take it before your birthday or after your birthday. It just matters that you take it in the year that you have your birthday. 
Next question is from Gail. Gail says, and, and by the way, this is a long one, so I'm going to summarize what this is. But Gail says, love your podcast and have some questions on your recent episode on doing Roth conversions. The questions pertain to when an increase in RMD has a domino of impact on taxable social security and taxable income for federal taxes. Here are some examples I ever run, assuming married finally and jointly and based on 2020 tax return. If your income consists of social security of 64,000, pension of 9,500, shown below is the impact on taxable income and taxable social security with varying IRA distributions at age 72. Now, I'm not going to go through all these numbers, but she walks through the fact that if you take a $15,000 IRA distribution, it leads to one number for taxable income and taxable social security in total federal tax versus taking IRA distributions of 20,000 and 25,000. The bottom line, and I'll let Gail summarize it here, she says, so when I look at the numbers above, it shows a $10,000 increase in an IRA distribution, so from $15,000 to $25,000, causes more of the Social Security to become taxable, which increases the taxable income. In theory, isn't this extra $10,000 in IRA distribution costing $2,082 in federal taxes or about 21%? Should this factor into the decision on doing Roth conversions with retirees who have smaller taxable IRA balances at age 72, around 700,000, or should I be more concerned with the effective tax rate? 25,000 IRA distribution plus social security and pension for total income of 98,500 and total federal taxes owed of $3,370, so an effective federal tax rate of 3.42% and just be happy. Yes, Gail, thank you for this question. And it's probably confusing for anyone not seeing what I'm seeing. She actually sent over a chart that showed different tax rates and different IRA distribution amounts. The less important thing is those specific numbers as much as the principle of what's actually going on here. So what Gail is saying is as she looks at taking more money out of her, her IRA, it's not just a proportionate increase in the federal taxes that she owed for doing so. It's actually more than that. And that's because the more your adjusted gross income goes up, the more potentially of your social security benefit may become taxable. So it's not just the 10% or 12% or 22% extra taxes that you're paid on every extra dollar you pull out of your IRA. It's that plus an increasing amount of your social security that is now being taxed. This comes down to something called provisional income. Now, Provisional income, what it has to do with is it's a separate calculation that determines how much of your social security benefit is taxable. So here are the things that social security, or here's the things that your provisional income includes. It looks at your wages. It looks at your taxable interest. It looks at your non-taxable interest. It looks at dividends, pensions, self-employment, other taxable income, plus half of your annual social security benefit add all those numbers up. If you are single, and if that provisional income, so the sum of all those numbers, is less than 25000 then 0% of your social security benefit is taxed. So let's look at an example. Let's say you're single, and let's assume that you have a social security benefit, an annual benefit of $30,000 per year, and let's assume that you have a pension income of $8,000 per year. And those are your only income sources. Well, if that's the case, then to get your provisional income, we're going to take your $8,000 of pension plus half of your social security benefit. So half of 30,000 is 15,000. So when we had eight plus 15, that comes out to $23,000. So because your provisional income is less than $25,000, what that tells us is that 0% of your social security benefit is taxable. 
So really the only thing that's taxable in this case is going to be your pension. And because that's only $8,000, you take even a standard deduction on that and you're going to be in a 0% tax bracket. So your provisional income though, in this case, showed us that your social security benefit would not be taxable at all. Now let's assume same example, but you have a, you're single, you have a $30,000 annual social security benefit. And let's just assume you're taking $100,000 out of your IRA each year. Well, now in this case, your provisional income is going to be the $100,000 from your IRA plus half of your social security benefit. So 15,000. So now your provisional income is 115,000. Well, if your income is above 34,000, if your provisional income is above 34,000, then 85% of your social security benefit is taxable. So in this case, you're certainly well above that. 85% of social security is taxable. Now, some people hear that and they say, oh my gosh, 85% of my social security benefit is taxed. Well, it's not as if 85% is taken away in taxes. 85% is included in your taxable income. So what that's saying is 15% of your benefit is completely tax-free at the federal level. And then the other 85% is included in your taxable income in the same way an IRA distribution would be included in your taxable income. So if you're single and your provisional income is less than 25,000, 0% of social security benefit is taxable. If over 25,000, but under 34,000 is your provisional income, then 50% of your social security benefit is taxable. And if over $34,000 is what your provisional income is, then 85% of that is taxable. Now, if you're married, the numbers aren't that different. You don't just double them, unfortunately. Here's the numbers for provisional income if you are married finally jointly. If your provisional income is less than $32,000, then 0% of your social security benefit is taxable. If you're married finally jointly, and your provisional income is greater than 32,000, but less than 44,000, then 50% of your social security benefit is taxable. And if over $44,000 is what your provisional income is, then 85% of your social security benefit is taxable. So just quick side note, why are those numbers so low? It's almost laughably low when compared to everything else in the tax bracket. Well, these numbers were set a long time ago and they have never been adjusted for inflation. So as Social Security is running into this problem of funding and how are we going to keep the problem or keep the system solvent, one way they do that is they don't increase these numbers for inflation. So very few people actually don't have any of their Social Security benefit taxed at all. Most people are paying taxes on their Social Security. So going back to Gail's question, as she's talking about this concept of, hey, it seems like the more I take out of my IRA or the more calculations I run, these extra taxes being paid seem higher than they should be. You're exactly right, Gail, and it comes down to your provisional income. What's likely happening is you're sliding up through the ranks of having a provisional income where a lower percentage of your Social Security is taxed, and then a, an increasingly higher amount of it is being taxed. So not only are you being taxed on your IRA distributions at a higher and higher rate the more you take out, but as you do so, the more of your Social Security is being picked up into your taxable income as well, which is also increasing your taxes. Now, quick side note on this. Roth distributions actually do not count towards provisional income. So say hypothetically, you had your entire portfolio in a Roth IRA when you retired, and you were just living on Social Security and Roth IRA, you could probably get to the point where you pay nothing in taxes. And that's because you can take as much money out of your Roth IRA as you want, and it's not factored into your provisional income. And since only half of your Social Security benefit is factored into provisional income, 
chances are good it stays under that threshold to where maybe nothing is paid in taxes on your social security benefit because of your provisional income and nothing is paid in taxes on your Roth IRA income just because of the fact that Roth IRAs are not subject to taxes. Not super likely that most people will have that, nor is it super important to have that. Some people will ask, oh my gosh, should I just really accelerate my Roth conversion strategy in order to get all my money to a Roth? No. The benefits of having your social security benefit completely tax-free usually is not worth the cost of paying much higher taxes on Roth conversions in order to convert everything over into a Roth IRA. So thank you for that question, Gail. That is an important thing to note, something that surprises a lot of people, but that comes down to provisional income. So that's all the questions I think we have time for today. Again, if you have a question, even if it's just a quick one, we'll answer in a future mailbag type episode like this, or if it's a longer one, we'll devote an entire episode to it. But did want to say thank you to all of you who are submitting questions. I hope this is helpful. If you are listening and you are enjoying, please be sure to leave a review. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already done so, check us out on YouTube. Uh, Root Financial Partners is the name of the YouTube channel. And I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.